Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Amen. Good morning, Hope Rock Church. Morning, Tim. Good morning, everybody else as well. <laughs> uh, uh, it's good to be here with you all. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, belated for everybody. I hope you had a great week this week. I know that uh, we certainly had a great week. Uh, if the amount of food you eat is a product of how good your week has been, then I think we had an awesome week. Uh, in fact, it was a little bit too good, right, love? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously for me, I'm talking about not for you. I mean, you didn't eat too much. We are going to have a sense of humor this morning. So I'm just warning you, we do want to have fun as well. Because uh, churches doesn't have to always be serious. We can have sometimes say, right, Jonah? I mean, you know how to have fun. I've seen you, bro. Like, you're a funny guy. Anyway, just uh, quick, uh, before I get going, last week Sunday, uh, Kat, myself, uh, along with the Vales and, or, you know, I said the Vales, right? It's actually the Valles family and the Hardys were in Rotan. Uh, we had an awesome time. It was a great trip. We saw God move in a number of amazing ways. And the reason I'm bringing this up this morning is we're not going to do the report back today. We are going to get to that. The reason I'm bringing it up today is because I just want to thank the team that stayed behind, the deacons, the volunteers that always make everything happen like clockwork without any influence from anybody else, but just the Spirit of the Lord on them. And so they are amazing. I want to thank the elders in the local church as well. I also want to specifically thank Blake for doing a great job leading the meeting. Uh, I mean, he did a great job. Let's give him a hand. Come on. And Charlie for preaching a powerful message on God's providence, right? It was providential, right? I mean, it happened when it needed to happen. That's what providence is all about. So it was really good. It was, it was amazing just to, you know, be there and know that God is moving here in this local church. Some quick announcements before we get started. Life groups and our weekly ministry nights are coming to an end for the month of December. Uh, and so we want to shut those things down and give you opportunities to spend more time at home with your family. The reason we want to do that is fall has been a crazy season. I don't know about you guys, but it feels like what we didn't do last fall, we try to make up this year, right? Every year we're just doing more. And so it's been a crazy season. And in addition to that, we've also gone to two services. And so we have, you know, seen a lot of people come together and invest heavily here and are doing that in terms of time and effort. And so we want to give you as much free time over the month of December as possible. So take it off. Um, second announcement is we are going to have a Christmas Eve service on the 24th, which is Christmas Eve, right? I mean, that was a surprise, right? <laughs> I bet you didn't guess that. So on the 24th, we're going to have two services, 4.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. Uh, they're going to be an awesome evening. We're going to sing some carols. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to have a message. It's going to be powerful. Most of all, Jesus will be glorified and we will be preaching the gospel. I say this to you because we've produced these little postcards. They're really cool, really amazing. And lots of Don't say we don't give you anything for Christmas. Okay, I'm just saying. Because you can take one of these. That's your Christmas present. Merry Christmas, guys. These postcards, you see, you're not having a sense of humor today. Okay, that's the problem. Yeah, you, yeah. these postcards are designed and produced so that you can take them with you when you leave. Not so they can become coasters at home, okay? Not so they can just stay in your fridge to remind you that there's a Christmas Eve service, although that is a good idea. But they are there for you to take, give them to your friends, your family members, people that you know desperately need to hear the gospel. Give it to your neighbors. There are many of these. You can take as many as you want, as long as you use them. My plea to you is don't let these sit in your drawers at home. If you're going to draw, is that what they call them here? Drawers are, is it drawers? Right, okay. Sorry, because I was worried that that meant something else. And then I was, okay. Anyway, don't let these just sit around at your house and gather dust, okay? Take them. 
give them away, get people here, because we are going to preach the gospel. And so if you know any lost people, this is a great service to, to bring them into. Often it's at Christmas and Easter where people feel most open to hearing the gospel message because tradition says that they go to church. Uh, and so we would love to be the place that they come to. Um, last week, Sunday, last announcement for this morning, Charlie mentioned this, but I'm going to just touch in on it, touch in on it a little, little, bit, little bit more about our Christmas Impact Offering. We are in a season now where we raise funds for the year ahead. That's what Christmas Impact Offering is for our local church. Every year we, we wait and we hear from the Lord and we say, Lord, what do you want to do in this local church for the year ahead? And He lays things in our hearts. And so we are in that season now where we are looking to raise funds. The Lord has laid two key areas on our hearts for 2022. Now, I want to be clear. These areas that we're raising funds for are over and above what we currently do. In other words... Whatever funds are raised for Christmas Impact don't affect what we do from a ministry perspective. We will continue to support Rotan, the missionaries across the world, and all the other things that we do. These are specific areas in addition to that. And so the two areas that we feel like God is taking us into for next year, and you would have this in your letters if you got one, are the new venue, which is something we've all been praying for for a while now. Uh, it's not a new thing. In fact, I feel like I've been talking about a new venue since the day we started in this local church, right? Thank you, Jeremy and Ashley. This is your dream. And... Uh, I mean, to be honest, I just want to honor Jeremy and Ashley because this venue is a product of their faithfulness. And so will the next one be. But anyway, we've been praying about this new venue, this new space. Uh, I know sometimes it doesn't look like it, but God has added many people to this local church. Uh, and what we do know is God wants us to influence the city he's called us to. And so a new venue means for us that we'll literally double, if not triple, the space that we have in this worship space for adults. And we will quadruple the space that we have for our kids. Uh, which is amazing because that's the next generation, right? We believe that God wants to sow into them because one day they're going to be leading us. I mean, these mighty young men and women of God in this church are amazing people. We saw some of these guys operate in Rotan this week, you know, in ways that honestly just blessed our hearts. And so God is doing that. And the good news is we don't need a lot of money for this in the sense that we have been faithfully saving up for some time. 73% of the cost of the build-out has already been covered by just your generosity and the Lord's provision. What we need is just to top up that amount with less, the rest of it for all the additional stuff. So we need about 115K. But the good news is, is that whether or not that happens, I am from South Africa. And so I'm saying that to you because we can just meet in a concrete floor and sit down on the floor. I'm used to meeting under trees, right? We don't need all the fancy stuff. No, no. Sh Sorry, that's my daughter. She's talking to me. So sweet. Um, the second thing that we want to raise funds for for next year is the 1231 Project. Um, you guys might know Angela Dalhauser. Her husband, Mike, started the 1231 Project. And what it is, is it's a way for us to support local Lake Travis independent school district families, families that are suffering, families that are in need. I know sometimes you might think, is that possible? Do people around you need anything? Believe me, there are families in need. We've already supplied 10 Thanksgiving meals, which was amazing. Thank you for that. We'll be doing 10... Christmas meals for families that need it. But what we want to do next year is we want to make a bigger impact in families' lives. We actually want to change their lives, not a meal at a time, but for the rest of their lives. And to do that requires some funding. We want to pull people out of the circumstances that they're in, show them the love of Jesus, and fundamentally change everything in their lives. And to do that, we want to raise about 20 grand to support two families and really change you know, their whole outlook and their whole perspective. And so can I ask you as a local church just to be praying with us. Prayfully consider this year's Christmas impact offering. Go to the Lord. Don't listen to me and don't give out of obligation. Give because the Lord has purposed you to give. And whatever you feel like the Lord's stirring in your heart, then that'll be amazing because God looks after this church. I also just want to thank you for, and all of you, for being such an amazing and generous church already. You guys are so awesome. Uh, and I want to say this to you. We came back from Rotan and we've seen the faithfulness of this church change lives on that island. It's 
phenomenal to see what God is doing. And he's doing it to you guys. And, and so I just want you guys, give yourselves a hand, a big hand, a big hand. Come on, you can be excited. Yay. Come on, man. Okay, I'm going to start my clock now. Anyway, thank you so much. That brings us to this morning. As Tim said earlier, we're going to start a four-part series on Advent. Uh, I don't know about you, but for many years, I didn't know what Advent meant. I just celebrated it, right? It was this cool thing to do. We got chocolates every night, hidden away in the house, did a devotional. It was amazing. Advent, if you don't know what it means, simply means uh, the beginning of something. It means, you know, an invention like the advent of the motor vehicle. Or it means celebrating or the arrival of someone really, really important. So when dignitaries came into town, it was the advent of, uh, of an era that was started or something like that. And so over many years in the global church, this season of Advent has become the four weeks where we celebrate Christmas. We look forward to Christmas, we celebrate it, and we don't do it because we have to, we do it because we choose to. Advent is not in the Bible. We won't find it in the scriptures. It won't tell you, listen, every four weeks before Christmas, you've got to stop and celebrate it. No, we do this because we want to do it, and there's a reason why we want to do it. You see, during this time, these four weeks leading up to Christmas, we get to celebrate the arrival of not just any person, but the greatest human being that has ever lived, who's equally God. His name is Jesus Christ. We celebrate him by reminding ourselves and reminding each other of what Christmas truly means. I say that to you because, if we're honest, the meaning of Christmas can so quickly and so easily be lost. We get lost in the worldliness of this holiday. I mean, this holiday has been hijacked by the world. Let's be honest. I mean, it's become a very worldly holiday. Some people have stopped looking forward to Christmas because Christmas actually causes them a whole lot of stress. That's not God's intention. And that's not what Christmas is about. You see, Christmas is more than just decorating our houses. And please don't get me wrong. I love decorating my house. I do love it, love. But just like it's enough at sometimes, you know. <laughs> but it's more than that. It's more than, you know, getting together with family and friends and having a big meal. It's definitely more than the giving and the receiving of gifts. Celebrating Christmas has got to do with one word, and that word for me is love. The love of the creator God of the universe who loved us so much that he would come to this earth, take on human form, be born in a stable, in a major, no less. And then guess what? Die the death that we deserve to die. And if you're wondering why the God of the universe would do that, the answer is simple. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whomsoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. Perhaps this is the first time, whether you're online or here in person, and you've ever heard that. Yes, it is true. Jesus died that painful, horrible death that we deserve to die so that we wouldn't have to. And what's more, in that great exchange, in that beautiful moment on the cross, he gave us a hope, a hope to hold on to, that unlike this temporal, fickle, and sick world that we live in, is an eternal hope. It will never go away. It will not change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. All that said, I want to remind us this morning of the hope that we have and the only hope we should ever have, and that is the hope that we find in Christ. So let's bow our heads. I want to pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for everybody that's here today, everyone that's watching online. I pray for all of our hearts, Lord, that you would open them and that you would speak clearly to us, that you would minister directly to us, Lord, and where we've allowed hopelessness to set in, that this morning you would do something in us where we can focus our attention on you again. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So all this talk about hope, right? Hope is amazing. Hope is great. It's good to have hope. This church is called Hope Rock. Isn't that amazing, hey? 
how it is, because there's the hope in the rock. The rock is Jesus, right? Hallelujah. We have hope. But perhaps you're here today and you feel like hope is a luxury that you just don't have. Maybe it's because you have uh, experienced some type of loss. Maybe your life has taken an unexpected turn. Or perhaps it's the result of dealing with this protracted pandemic we find ourselves in. Yes, and there's a new variant, and it's from South Africa, right? Okay, let's get that out of the way. Let's just talk to the elephant in the room. Okay, it's called Omicron. Sounds like a transformer. Okay, and just by the way, it wasn't from South Africa. They just found it. That's how awesome we are. We find things that nobody else can find. There's a meme going around. If you know South Africa, you'll understand that we struggle with electricity there. We can find viruses, but we can't keep the lights on. But it's interesting anyway. Sorry for getting distracted there. Maybe you've lost hope because it's not about the pandemic itself, but maybe it's the results of the pandemic. Maybe it's the fact that you are confronted by the brokenness of the systems of this world, which, by the way, have let us down dramatically over the last two years. If you ever trusted in the systems of this world, these last two years have showed you that you cannot ever trust in them again. Maybe it was a good thing. Or perhaps it's the effect of rising inflation, a bleak economic outlook, or the fruit that's caused by broken and fallen human hearts. Whatever it is, the reality is that all of us at times, when confronted by the world and the pressures that sometimes feel unbearable, can find ourselves living in a place of hopelessness. If that's you, I want to use our time this morning to show you that hope is actually not a luxury. Hope is not something that we, we, we hopefully will attain to one day. It's not a fleeting, distant emotion either. Instead, it's something that we as believers should have every moment of every second of every single day. And I can say that to you this morning because as difficult as things may or can be, we as believers, Christ followers, should be the most hopeful people in all of creation. Unfortunately, we don't see it like that all the time. So what does hope mean? Let's think about the word and what it means to us. To most people, the word hope means wishful thinking, right? Wishful thinking. I hope this is going to happen, right? Or we can only hope, right? Catherine only hopes that I would pick up my clothing off the floor, right? I mean, that's a hope, bro. Like, she's hoping that I will do that one day, that she won't have to tell me to clean up my clothes. Okay? And we all have those things. You guys here know what I'm talking about. You do that thing that drives your wife mad. Okay? And they hope that we'll change one day. But you know what? You, we're not going to change, love. We won't do it. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> amen. Somebody said amen. Uh, but seriously, hope to us often means wishful thinking. It's when we hope something will happen, but it's used with uncertainty because often the thing that we're hoping for, we know might never come true. But that's not the way we are called by God as Christ followers should, to understand the word hope. Instead, for us as Christ followers, the word hope is not based on a possible outcome. It's not based on any probability. In fact, hope for us is based on confident expectation. That's what the word means, confident expectation. In other words, what we are hoping in is guaranteed. There is no doubt in it. It's not uncertain in any way, shape, or form. We're not hoping that Jesus is real. We know that Jesus Christ is real. Hope is not a word. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. But therein lies the challenge. Because to have this unshakable hope, to have a hope that can transcend whatever we're dealing with in this life means that we have to consistently and continuously keep our eyes on him. And while that might sound obvious and seem obvious, and maybe you know this intuitively, how many of you agree with me that it's not always the easiest thing to do? I say that because the world and our flesh consistently wants us to hope in other things, right? It wants us to hope in these temporal or fleeting pleasures that are all around us. 
things that we can see, things that we can touch, things that we can taste, things that we think can answer all of life's problems. And while there are some things that we can certainly hope for in this world and we should be hoping for, things that are good things, they're not bad things, the challenge is when our hope in those things supersede our hope or at least replace our hope in Christ. When those things become the thing that are going to fix everything in our lives or fix this world. Instead, our objective as believers in community, in church, that's what church is about, it's all of us together, is to continuously remind ourselves and to help each other when we've allowed our thoughts, our mind, our faith, and our trust to you know, move on to anything else, to come back to the only hope that can ever really guarantee anything, and that is the hope in Christ. And so to help us to do this this morning, I want to unpack an event that's found in John chapter 5. It's a beautiful illustration of how both in hopelessness and in misguided hope, the Savior of the world shows up and brings hope to a hopeless situation. So turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 1. It says this, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, speaking of these colonnades, in other words, in every nook and cranny of the building, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So this account starts with Jesus arriving back in Jerusalem, right? He's been traveling. He comes back to Jerusalem. And this whole narrative unfolds, this event unfolds at a very specific place called the Pool of Bethesda. So before we go any further, we have to understand the context of what the Pool of Bethesda actually was. So at this stage, where Jesus is in, in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem city and the nation of Israel is under Roman occupation. So they're under Roman rule at this point in time. But before the Romans ruled, there was another civilization which was also quite great and quite strong until the Italians came and beat them. That's what we do, us Italians. That's why we won the World Cup, I mean the Euro Cup this year. Okay, that's right, smile, it's fine. Before the Romans were the Greeks. And the Greeks had created a cult, a cult around a god called Asclepius. He was the pagan god of healing, the, daughter of a, the son of Apollo, and the son of a lady called Coronas. It's interesting, that name. That's where we get the coronavirus from, actually. So this god, Asclepius, was a demigod, but a god that would control any type of healing. But what the Greeks taught and what they believed was in order for you and I to access this healing from Asclepius, we needed to go to an Asclepion. Now, an Asclepion was basically a place, you could think of it in modern terms as a clinic, where you could tap into the power of this God. Essentially, it was a temple of idolatry. It was a temple where you would place your faith, your hope, and your trust into something other than the God of the universe. These centers were typically built near pools of water, sacred sp springs, whether they were hot springs or mineral springs. You see them all over Europe. And those that, would sick, those that were sick would wait by the water, praying, fasting, and chanting to the God Asclepius, or his helpful serpents, to heal them. See, what they believed was Asclepius, in response to your prayers, would send his serpent spirits to the water, and they would stir up the water. And it was when the water was stirred up that healing was accessible. You'd literally flop into the water, jump into the water, do what you needed to do to get your healing. And so that's what the Pool of Bethesda was. It's a 45-foot deep, spring-fed mineral pool that had been turned into one of these Asclepions. And every time the bubbles from that natural spring would rise up to the surface, because that's what springs do, they feed water in, along with sediment and minerals, the people of the day believed that it was actually the serpent spirits stirring up the water and that they could be healed in that moment. 
Now, just think about the picture. I mean, think about these places. You know, you might think of yourself, or you think to yourself, this is a spa, right? You know, have you ever been to a spa, all the ladies out there? Yes, we've been to spas. We love spas. I even like a spa every now and then. But spas are beautiful places, right? Serene. You've got these beautiful, uh, what do you call those flowers, man? Orchids. They always have orchids everywhere and music playing. It just feels like you're in another world. That's not what an Esclepion looks like, just to be clear. This is a place of suffering, a place of hopelessness, a place where everybody that's there is desperate for an answer. This is a sad place. It's not a happy place. And it's on the back of that that I have the first point for us this morning. And that's this, having an unshakable faith, because that's what we need to develop, an unshakable hope means that we have to know that hopelessness is not forever. Hopelessness is not a destination. It's not what we have for the rest of our lives as believers. In verse 5, the text continues, it says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Again, picture the hopelessness. Everybody's waiting for something to happen. This man had been waiting for 38 years for a miracle that had not come. Now, what's interesting, if you continue to read John chapter 5 and this particular account and this event itself, what you will find is that it is implied in the text that the reason this man was an invalid or paralyzed was because as a result of his own sin. You've got to go read this later on today. We're not going to read it this morning. In other words, what I'm telling you is that this man, this invalid, wasn't born paralyzed. It wasn't something that he got from birth. This was something that happened to him in his life. And the implication is that he was involved in stuff that he shouldn't have been doing. And because of that, he became paralyzed. Think of somebody that maybe burgles houses, breaks into places. Perhaps he had robbed somebody and was trying to escape and he fell off the roof of a building like uh, the guy from that movie was uh, Aladdin, right? That guy, except he was, never fell. But this guy fell. Imagine, he fell on the floor, broke his back. And so here we have a guy who's not only been waiting for a miracle for 38 years for him to be healed, but not only that, he has to deal with a constant accusation from the enemy telling him that the reason he's there, the reason that he's paralyzed, the reason that his back is broken is because he did something to put himself there. Can you imagine that torment? Can you imagine what it feels like to live under the weight of knowing that the consequences of my sin caused me to suffer the way I'm suffering? I would only be riddled with guilt. Not just guilt, I'd probably feel very condemned. In fact, condemnation would be something that I felt all the time. And it's in this place of constant torment, the torment of this healing that hasn't come, this reminder of his sin, that all of a sudden Jesus steps in. What's interesting is this man doesn't ask Jesus a single thing. He never looks at Jesus and says, can you heal me? It's almost as if he's resigned himself to the fact that this is who he is. He's nothing more than a paralyzed sinner who deserves to be where he's at. He's lost all hope. But Jesus steps in and asks him a question. He says to him, do you want to be healed? Perhaps you know that feeling. Perhaps you know what it feels like to be so hopeless that you've stopped crying out to God. Maybe you've been praying for things in your life that have just never happened. And because of that, you've now resigned yourself to the fact that God's never going to answer you. Maybe there's some of us that are here today because they've been stuck in a bad situation for so long that you also feel hopeless. Or maybe like this man, we're dealing with the consequences of sin in our lives. Maybe something we've done has caused us to fail in some certain way and we're still dealing with the consequences. And we're dealing with a constant accusation from the enemy that we're nothing more than the sum total of our poor decisions. If that's you, if you're here this morning and you're feeling hopeless, 
or if you are constantly feeling condemned because of something you did in your past, I have two words for you. And those words are stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Say stop it. Stop it. I say that to you because what we see in this text is that although this man may have resigned himself to being hopeless, and although this man may have resigned himself to calling himself a good-for-nothing sinner, what we see is Jesus wasn't going to let him stay in that place. Jesus invaded this man's life. Jesus is not going to let you or I this morning stay in any place of condemnation and or hopelessness, because this morning he's going to invade it by asking us a simple question. Do you want to be healed? This past week in Roatan, we had the awesome privilege of meeting so many amazing people. Honestly, it just blows my mind. Every time we go there, we just meet amazing people. Some of these amazing people had no parents. Some of these amazing people lived and ate in very challenging environments, like the garbage dump. Some of these people literally ate out of the garbage dump. Some of these people had been addicted for so long that they believed that the only place they would ever be welcomed was the gutters that they found themselves in. What's crazy to me, especially in this Western mindset that we have, is despite their harsh reality, the reality of living in a very desperate situation, very hard living circumstances, those people that had made the decision to follow Christ, every single one of them without fail, had a smile on their face and a glimmer in their eyes. Why? Because they knew that in Christ, hopelessness was not their final destination. In fact, they knew that hopelessness was a place that they left a long time ago. My point being, no matter how hopeless or desperate your situation may look today, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, hopelessness is something we leave in our wake. And what we have today is an eternal hope that will never fail. The second point is having, in, in having an unshakable hope is that we need to become people who know what it means not to get stuck in verse 7, it continues, but remember, Jesus asks this question. He says, do you want to be healed to this man? And the sick man answered him, said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Now, you've got to remember this, right? There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people all over the place, lying around the pool, vying for their position, hopefully trying to get as close as possible as they can get to this point so that when that water gets bubbly, they can just dive into the pool. What's crazy for me, though, is that Jesus had to have walked through these people. And so walking through all of these people who were pretty hopeless, right? Some of them maybe were lepers. Some of them were paralyzed, as this man was. Maybe some of them were dealing with some type of chronic disease. Some of them maybe had cancer. Some of them were terminally ill. All of them, while Jesus is busy making his way, winding through the crowd, are looking at the water. They're waiting for this magic moment to happen, for the bubbles to appear. All the while... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Creator God of the universe, the only person that could ever give them any hope was standing right in their midst. And they missed it. I mean, think about this man. Jesus asks him a question. Do you want to be healed? What does he do? He doesn't say, yes, Lord, heal me. He says, no, I can't be healed. It's impossible. Why? Because I can't get to the water. In the face of of the only God that could ever help him, he misses the point and says, actually, I can give you all the reasons why my hopelessness is terminal and why I can't do anything because I can't help myself. 
Now, before we judge this man too harshly or these people too harshly, the fact is, in moments of desperation in my own life, I know that it's far easier for me to turn to things that are within my control for hope or things of the world for hope. I don't know about you. Does anyone else do that? Is it easier for you to sometimes trust in what you can do before you go and trust in God? We all do it. We do it all the time. In the case of this man, because his hope was in the magic water, what he failed to realize was that he would be stuck there for the rest of his life. Had Jesus not shown up, this man would have died next to that pool. I can say that, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm assuming that, right? I can't tell you that definitely. It's not scripture. But I mean, this man, 38 years, he'd been sick. Before that 38 years, David Dash and I were talking about this this morning. Joe was there as well. He had clearly lived a life where he had committed sin. This man was in his 40s at the very minimum. The life expectancy for people in that time were like 40. That was it, bro. Like we live in an age where we, where we live really old. Those days, 40 years old, you were an old man. So think about it. This guy's lived for a long time. He's literally about to die. He's on his deathbed. And he'd been stuck there all of this time. Why? Because his hope was in the water. It was in the magic that the water could provide. The point I'm trying to make this morning is that when we trust in anything other than Jesus Christ, we will be stuck. Why? Because we'll be waiting for that thing to answer the life's, life's greatest challenges for us. We'll be waiting for that thing to fix our lives, and it will never fix it. And so you'll be in this place always waiting, always longing, always hoping that something will be different tomorrow. You'll be stuck. It's insanity, friends. It's insanity trusting in things that are, that are not Jesus Christ. And so the question I have for us this morning is, who or what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for in our own lives? Maybe it's that promotion that you think is going to change everything. That's going to just change your whole circumstances. The whole world will open up for you now. Maybe it's not a promotion. Maybe it's a new house with more space. Maybe it's that child that will fix, you know, a marriage that's on the rocks. Perhaps it's the end of a pandemic. Or maybe it's the next president. If we can just have another president, then everything will be fine. You know, whatever it is, I've got news for you today. If it's anything other than Jesus Christ, that thing will cause you to be stuck. Because you know what? That thing will fail you too. It'll fail me. The third point, having an unshakable hope means that we know our hope has got nothing to do with us, but everything to do with him. When we make hope about us, we're in trouble. Verse 8 says, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. What blows my mind about this passage, I mean, a lot of things blow my mind about it, but this one thing is really interesting, is that this man had pretty much, like, he had messed up big time. I mean, if there was a guy that done messed up, this was the guy, right? This was the guy that Jesus finds. This guy, in a temple of idolatry, worshipping a false god, a sinner, a victim, blaming everything and everyone else for his circumstances, yet Jesus shows up. By no product of his own doing, this man gets healed. Do you notice that this whole time he hasn't asked Jesus for anything? He hasn't asked him for anything. He hasn't done anything. In fact, all he's shown is a lack of faith in every, in every respect in his life. He doesn't ask Jesus for the healing, but he gets the healing. He never earned it. He doesn't deserve it. Jesus still did it. And this is a critical revelation for us to get this morning. Because the truth is, for far too long, I have allowed, or for maybe even too often, sometimes I still do it, I allow myself to tie how hopeful I feel to what I can achieve in my own strength or what I can achieve through my own good works. 
My hope has a lot to do with what I can do. I know that none of you suffer with that, and that's why I'm coming here today to confess my sins so that you guys can be praying for me. I mean, the truth is, if, I'm, if I can be vulnerable with you, in my life, this is the one area where the enemy and my flesh attack me the most. Honestly. I say this because often I allow how much hope I have in Jesus or in his kingdom to be as a direct result of how much I am doing for him or how well I feel in him. My feelings have a lot to do with my hope. When I'm feeling holy, like when I'm thriving in my quiet times, when I'm just praying and I feel like the earth is shaking, you know, the heavens are open, I'm speaking to the Lord, I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, and when I can prepare sermons without even stressing about it, I feel like, man, I've got so much hope, man, hallelujah, look at me, I'm the man, I can do this now. On the contrary, though, unfortunately, those moments don't last forever. Sometimes my quiet times are really difficult. Sometimes I'm praying, I feel like I'm praying to nothing, honestly. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I can be praying sometimes and I feel like there is a war between me and God. I feel like I'm just pressing in, but nothing's happening. I feel like I'm reading the word, but I'm not getting any, like it's not feeding me. And it's not God that's changed. His word hasn't changed. His spirit is the same. I'm in a situation where I've allowed my feelings to determine how hopeful I feel. Like this last Friday, we came back from Roatan. Um, it was an amazing trip, right? You always come back on these spiritual highs. You see things. God moves. And the power of God is there. And then you come back, and I'm sitting there in that office. I call it my office. It's really a children's church room, but that's my office too. I sometimes play with the cars as well when I'm distracted. I'm sitting there, and I can't even string two sentences together for this preach. I can't even do it. I can't think of what I'm going to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know how I'm going to preach this message. And you know what? In that moment, I realize I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I think I might have even said that to the Lord. I think I might even have called myself Hopeless. What an indictment. Man, what's abundantly clear in this text is that our hope has got nothing to do with what we do, how we feel, or how much we've done. What it has to do with is Him. Everything that we base our hope on is about what Jesus did for us, not what we can do for Him. And I want you to be free this morning because the enemy wants you to live in a place where he wants to convince you that what you do will determine how much hope you have in his kingdom. His kingdom is final. His word is the truth. And he has died on the cross. Nothing can change it. And if you are his child today, if you have made a decision to follow him, then your hope is secure no matter how you feel or no matter what the world throws against you. Last point, and I'm going to close with this. Micah, you guys can come up. Having an unshakable hope means that we have to know that we are chosen. Look at the person next to you and tell them they're chosen. They've been chosen. Tell them they've been chosen. Thank you, Tim. It's good. Do you remember the word that was used to describe how many people were waiting at the pool? Do you remember that word? Do you remember what the word was? How many people? A multitude of people. Do you know what multitude means? It's not one person. It's not two people. It's not three people. It's a group of people that's so large that it's difficult to count with the naked eye. This was a lot of people, more people that are in this room today. Probably more people than both our services combined. Perhaps more people than some churches have. I don't know. But there was a lot of people waiting for this miracle. Yet what's clear, yet what's clear, sorry, is that this man was the only person that Jesus healed. Jesus didn't heal anybody else. Think about it. Jesus had to walk past so many other people to get to this person. Maybe he even stepped over a couple of people. Maybe there were other people that looked more desperate than this man looked like. But Jesus chose him. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it about this man 
that made him such a special candidate? Well, what we do know is that there was a sense of Jesus having compassion on him because of the amount of time he'd been waiting. But what about other people? Maybe some other people had been there longer than him. We don't know. It doesn't say that this man was the longest person waiting at the pool of Bethesda for healing. There might have been someone that had been there for 40 years. Or perhaps there was somebody that had been there for 37 and a half years. My point being, there must have been other people that had been there longer or at least more worthy. When you consider the fact that this man's sin caused him to be lame or paralyzed, there must have been people that were born sick. Surely they deserved Jesus' healing more than this man deserved it. After all, he caused himself to be in that position. And so the question is, what was it that made this man so special? I hope you're not expecting me to answer it. Because I don't have the answer. Honestly, I don't have the answer. I can't tell you what made this man so special. I can't tell you. There is no answer that I can give you. But what I do know is this. John 15, 16 says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We didn't choose Jesus. He chose us. He chose us on purpose and he chose us for a purpose. His purpose for us is to bear fruit, to know Christ and to make him known. I can tell you right now, I don't deserve to be chosen. I never have. I honestly don't think I ever will feel like I ever deserved it. But for whatever reason, God chose me. Maybe you here this morning and you like this man have been hopeless for a very long time. Maybe you're watching online. I don't know. But all hope is gone. It's gone out the window a long time ago and you don't have any hope. Or maybe you haven't been hopeless for very long. Something has just happened. It doesn't matter how long or how short you've been hopeless. The fact is you're hopeless today. Whatever it is, I can say this with confidence this morning. It's no accident that you are here today. It's no accident. Every one of us are divinely brought you by God. And I'm saying this to everybody. Even if you don't even believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior yet, I want you to know that it is no accident that you're here today. In fact, I have a word for all of us. And that word this morning is God wants to tap you on the shoulder and say to you that you are chosen. Maybe that's exactly what you struggle with. I know it's what I struggle with a lot of the times. Wondering, what is it that I, what did I do to make you know, my life count more than anybody else's life? We ask these questions all the time. Lord, what about all the people in the world that are suffering? Why me, Lord? Why did you choose me? God saved us on purpose and for a purpose. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, says this, to them... Speaking of the saints, another word to put it is the chosen ones God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And so first of all, it's a mystery. We don't have to answer the question why he chose us, but here's an insight. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. If you want to know this morning why you were chosen, why you're here today, and why you're hearing these words, it's because Christ in you is the hope of glory. So the next time the enemy comes to you and he wants you to believe that you're not good enough or that God made a mistake by choosing you and he clearly didn't look at your resume, you need to remind the enemy of these words that Satan, I am undeserving of what Jesus did for me in the cross, but he still chose me. And he chose me because Christ in me is the hope of glory. And so what that means 
is we, the chosen ones, get to take the mystery of this gospel and bring it to a dying and broken world. Because believe me, there are many other chosen people in this world. And what God is choosing is to use us as His hands and feet to take this gospel message to the furthest, darkest corners of the world. We just have to believe that we can do it. Thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. We are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making Him known in our city, the nation, and the ends of the earth. For more information on who we are, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook.